Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, this is Richard Gunther. As we were planning to record this episode, we've realized that it's been a year since my friend Adam Justice and I took over the helm, or the microphone as it were, at the Smart Home Show. So we thought it was a good time to look back at the events over the past year in this space. We've seen some pretty bad PR moves, some pretty good industry cooperation, and a whole lot of change in these most recent months as we've all adjusted to life in the age of COVID. Join us as we look back at the industry and bring our own perspectives to the situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Adam Justice from ConnectSense, and welcome to the Smart Home Show. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, Richard Gunther from the Digital Media Zone. And it's been a year since Richard and I took over the Smart Home Show. So on today's show, we're going to talk about the last year in Smart Home. Welcome, Richard. Welcome. A year. It's hard for me to believe that. You know, I think a couple episodes we talked about how Maybe in six months or so, we'll have to do another episode about what's going on in our homes. It's almost been a year since we did that. We did that in, I think, early July. It's crazy how fast the bulk of this last year went. These last two months, maybe a little bit of a different story. Either really slow or in hyperspeed, depending on (laughs) how things are going for you. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, hey, before we get started, I have a question for you. You know, as as we're joking about this, um, certainly the last couple months have been trying for many, many people in different ways. And depending on your life circumstances, it could be very different. So my question to you, and I'm not trying to get too heavy here, but during this whole COVID thing, what do you miss most right now? It could be a thing, an event. People, it, you know, it's it's going to be different for different people. I'll give you both. I'll give you the, the surface answer and the little bit deeper answer. So the surface answer and the silly thing, which maybe we'll have back soon, is baseball. I knew that was going to be it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> my family were obviously huge Cubs fans. Um, and so to start the spring without baseball has just been a little bit weird and not helped by like the Facebook memories of like on this day. And there was one within the last few months, like on one day over like three or four previous years, that just must have been baseball day because they were all pictures oh, of wow. me going to a baseball game. I'm like, so that hit hard. And my wife and I were supposed to go to London in June. They've started this last year doing this London series where they play a series in London. Um, So it was supposed to be the Cubs and Cardinals in June. And so we had booked our tickets. We had bought tickets for the game. Uh, All excited to have a trip without children in London. And that all got super duper canceled. So that's the surface answer. I would say the deeper answer is... Definitely getting to see important people in my life, um, close family, friends, things like that. Um, certainly 
FaceTime and Zoom has helped, but it's not quite the same. So I'm looking forward to being able to get a little bit of that back slowly and safely where it makes sense um, to see the people I care about. How about you? What do you miss? Yeah, for me, it's been a little bit weird because I've mentioned that this isn't significantly different from life any other week since I normally work at home. And, you know, most of the most of our most most of well, not most of my immediate family is gone. Um, And so, you know, neither one of us has any family that we're kind of missing seeing right now. And, you know, at this point in time, I think that's kind of a good thing. But I, I'm, I'm a consultant, and I go in the road and I spend time with my clients and I hang out with them and I forge relationships with them. And that's really what I am missing right now. We did a a virtual kickoff of a project with a client that I've known for years and years. And it was, it was a really productive and good session, but man, I missed that we would have been there going out for happy hour afterward. We would have been hanging out. Uh, we would have been sharing stories about what's going on in our respective lives. And just all of that just isn't happening now. Cause we don't have time to do that. Plus the work, you know? Right. Yeah, no, I agree. And, uh, I would guess you're also missing conferences. I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But, you know, South yeah. by being canceled, other things like that. I know those are important events to you. They are. I, I will tell you, it was a relief when South by was finally canceled. I'm I'm still really angry about how long they waited. It felt irresponsible to me. And I had already been kind of just in my mind thinking I wasn't going to go, even though that could go come at extreme loss to me, but I just, it didn't seem like a smart thing to be doing. And at the time we didn't even really understand the gravity of it. It just thought like, well, Hey, this seems like a really bad way of transmitting whatever between a lot of people, maybe not such a good time for this. I don't see social distancing in South by, you know, coexisting unless, you know, they go into it and sell, you know, whatever, a third less tickets somewhere down the line. But well, and cancel all the events. I mean, yeah, not happening. All right. Well, if you want to ask us a question that we can ask each other at the beginning of each show, you can send us the question with the hashtag Ask Adam and Richard through Twitter. All right. So um, as we said in the opening, uh, we've been doing this for a year. So uh, happy anniversary, Richard. Yeah, seriously. Like I said, hard to imagine. Yeah. So I mean, for those who maybe came in along the way, um, you know, this was a show that was originally run by our mutual friend, Mike Wolf. And as Mike, you know, got more involved in the smart kitchen, you know, he really didn't have the time for the smart home show anymore. So as Richard and I were talking about, you know, taking on a new show together, we said, well, you know, why, why start something from scratch? Let's pick up where Mike left off. And so that very first episode, um, we did an episode with Mike and talked about smart home and smart kitchen. And we've done 22 episodes since then. So pretty awesome. Had some really great, great discussions 
had some fun guests, uh, Renee Ritchie and Dan Seifert from The Verge. And uh, I will just say, like, I'd love to hear more feedback. You know, what what episodes did people like? What, you know, kind of themes and things would you like to see us do annually? And, uh, you know, hopefully we can bring you another great year of content in the coming year. Yeah, I think this has been something of an experimental year for us. You know, we did some episodes where we had guests. We did some roundtable episodes where we cross-promoted with other groups of people. And I think those were kind of fun, too. What I have liked and what I had hoped would happen and has is when when I started this, my colleague Josh at the DMZ, you know, I, I could almost see his look when he was asking me just through Slack, well, why would you be doing that show? How's that going to be any different from what you already do on Home On? And I think the way that we made it different was keeping it very much like Mike had intended, where we're looking at the industry at large. And sure, we dive into some specific products and specific uh, news, but we're really focused on what's going on in the space. And I think that these discussions are are interesting and important, and it's it gives us the opportunity to really dive deep in those things. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, we each bring a unique perspective to that and um, it makes for some really good conversation. So I appreciate everything we've done in the last year and I look forward to doing it for the foreseeable future. Ditto. So with that, we're going to kind of talk about some of the big things that we've talked about and hit on from the last year and um, sort of where those stand and where we see them going forward. So I think one of the first there was, um, you know, kind of the Google Nest branding and authentication shakeup. <laughs> shakeup. That's a good word. Yeah. I, I, I call it the pulling the rug out from under the Nest integrated products. Yeah. And I think this is one that certainly felt like a big deal at the time and maybe with time is getting less and less painful. I mean, I think Google also kind of stepped back a little bit on what initially seemed like a very, very rough change. Right. But, you know, I think a lot of these things with time feels like the right move and and where they needed to go to grow and, and kind of move on from legacy. As a manufacturer, I think you bring a... A, a more reasonable perspective to this than than I did because I was just angry. I just felt like the the whole way that they approached this and you know the 30 second explainer is that mid-year last year they said okay as of August no longer are your nest things going to be able to connect to anything having to do with Google anymore. Just not, it's not going to work anymore. We're, we're shutting that stuff down. And uh, so if you had Nest integrations to any other product, not just Google stuff, but to any other product, because that they, of how they were going to kind of take away this API, then you, you were going to be screwed. And there was such 
an uproar in the community about it, not just from consumers, but also from developers, from companies that had products or services that depended on this, that they did backtrack a little bit. And I, this is why I feel like, you know, it, <laughs> if you have to rethink after you have negative consumer feedback, how you're approaching some big thing you're doing, and this isn't the first time we're going to talk about this theme today, then that might suggest that you handled this wrong to begin with. Either that or you're playing 3D chess and that was part of your, you know, you had some things to, you know, give in on in case everybody blows up at it, you know, oh, in your sure. back pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New Coke. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately it will be okay. It's always a little rough to deal with some of this stuff, but I feel like I can see where some of those kinds of things may be like, you know, dragging around a, you know, 100 pound ball and chain that is just getting in the way of things you're trying to do. So it's hard from a user consumer developer perspective to see without the context for why it's happening, which usually a company can't really talk about. You know, there's a bunch of future forward looking stuff that is the reason for this. And when you can't talk about the reason for it, only just this new thing that sucks and is getting taken (laughs) away, then then obviously everybody has that reaction. So uh, hopefully this is one where, you know, a a year or two zoomed out, you'd be able to see, okay, I see why they had to shed this legacy debt. And so we could get X, Y, and Z, which is now awesome. Yeah, and and I totally get that. And the way you describe that is perfect. This is legacy debt. This is debt from an an integration for a a platform that wasn't designed to scale the way Google needs to scale and to handle security and authentication and privacy and information the way that Google is expected to handle those sorts of things. So I get it. You talked me down the first time we talked about this. But, you know, it, it's interesting to note, and I think this is a good transition into the next thing we wanted to talk about. While Amazon seems to just be making a big old messy Borg ship out of their assistant experience, Google has been continually improving the Google Home platform. I feel like Google Home is getting better and better, but it's we're we haven't made up what they've taken away yet. Like we still can't trigger events in Google Home based on something happening with some device. That's like the big missing piece here. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's getting there. I I think this is one, too, where to really get a sense for it, I'd almost have to like go all in and use it 100% of the time, which I don't do. And uh, I even like sort of proposed it to my wife at one point, like, what if we just like went all in on Google Home for a month? And she was like, you take my Alexa's away, then, uh, you know, you're going to be in big trouble. So... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so. I get that. I get that. Yeah, but I, I agree with you. I mean, I I avoid the Amazon app uh, as 
for uh, controlling smart home devices as much as I can. And uh, to that extent, it can be surprising sometimes when you do spend time and you're like, oh, they've added some things. They've done some features. But um, man, do they still, they just need to, you know, do a complete overhaul at some point. And it's clear that app design is not, uh, especially for smart home, is not uh, one, <laughs> one of their strengths. No, it's it's really it's really miserable, and it's funny that you talk about features that just pop up because that that's part of why I use the metaphor I did. You, you know, it's like they're just like patching stuff in, and it shows up kind of out of the blue, all over the place. It's not consistent, and it it doesn't seem to be. Well, let, let's just say that as a consumer. It's hard for me to see what their grand plan is because I see the experience getting more and more complicated, more and more unscalable. You know, Charlie Kindle famously joked about having like 200 and some devices in his home that would appear in that app. They propagate that problem. They they don't do the like adequate filtering of supported device. There's there are devices listed in my app that say not supported. Then why did you include it in the list? Right? Like I there's just so many things that they need to do to improve this experience and actually make it scale the way they're actively helping people scale the system by selling them more products and integrating more ecosystems. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what to say other than start over. <laughs> yeah. The backends there, the, the app just needs to, needs a, a thorough, you know, go hire Richard and, and fix your app, Amazon. It, it, it needs a rethink. It needs a complete rethink and not and 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 part of that is you know stop with serving up the web pages on your build an app all right just build an actual app because what you're doing is awful all right uh, enough of hating on amazon hey let's hate on ring because everybody else did this year <laughs> it's been quite the pile on between um you know listening in on or viewing uh people's cameras to password stuff to all kinds of things. I don't know. What am I missing that people were mad at ring about? Oh, information sharing police having access to logs that they, that wasn't obvious when people didn't read the fine print that they agreed to blindly. I, I mean, I, I joke about this because I take most of this with a grain of salt. I feel, and I think you've said the same thing, that Ring has had its share of problems. They have almost every single time stepped up quickly and addressed them and owned them and, um, you know, worked to correct whatever inherent problem was the cause whether they were responsible or not. Every once in a while, they get a little bit cavalier and they'd have a PR response along the lines of people aren't using it right. That doesn't go over well. They were right, but that doesn't always go over well. 
right? I, I mean, I think one of the things was about passwords, that people are reusing passwords or that people were not properly setting up their uh, security and they were allowing the things that people were complaining about happening. It's the same thing with Zoom. You know, Zoom is is the new ring. Right. You get to be a big enough profile, then everybody's going to come for your head. <laughs> and yeah, how dare you let me use my same password that I use all over the internet and then somebody got it from another breach and then they can see my camera. Right. Yeah, I agree. Some of it is silly and it's just people, you know, I think our culture thrives in this sensationalist journalism and so tech is not immune to that and so sometimes you know one person says you know hey somebody got into my ring camera and they they just um you know get all over it so some of it is warranted some of it is not i agree with you i think for the most part they've done a really good job of um, addressing things when they need to be addressed and and moving quickly to do so so next on our list uh speaking of people to be mad at, uh, is Sonos. I think this is one we talked about somewhat recently as they went through some transition. I think this kind of is similar to what we were talking about of shedding some legacy baggage. This one I think was done in a pretty poor way though. Yeah, I would agree. This is another PR nightmare. They made some announcements. They didn't really come out with the grand plan so people didn't understand what was behind what they were doing and why they were doing it. I feel like they let the message get ahead of them, where if they had controlled the message better, if they had, you know, the again, the 30-second explainer being that Sonos deprecates some of their old devices and announced that some of the old services aren't going to work on old devices. This is nothing new. Sonos and other manufacturers have been doing this for decades. What's different? Well, Sonos not for decades, but what what's different about this case is that Sonos <laughs> has a history of keeping stuff alive for a very, very long time. And when suddenly this thing that you have that's 10 years old and has managed to escape being deprecated is now going to end up on the obsolete list, that's hard for people to handle. And and I just feel like this was more of a messaging problem than anything else. Now, what's come of this is actually pretty cool. They have a next generation product line that's going to hit like any day now. And it takes advantage of new software that these older products just wouldn't be able to leverage, handling higher bandwidth, being able to do spatial audio, all kinds of new features that will be unique to these new products. And that's that's really good. And all of that got lost in the chaos that went on last fall and last winter from this. Well, and I think this is one where now that you now that we see those new products and those new features, you know, you can see, you know, the whole picture of why they had to do this. Um, Some people that understand technology and the limitations of microprocessors and all that kind of stuff can understand why that is. 
Some people are like, you know, well, my speakers from the 70s never stop working. Why is this one not working all of a sudden? And the fact that they were a higher price product to, you know, hit hit for some people, especially those that went very all in on it. But, you know, I think this is a reality that to a certain extent people need to get used to because, you know, things are going to get updates and they're going to last for a while, but it ain't going to last forever. Yeah, and I think that the press eventually turned to telling that story and helping consumers face that reality. I I know that we had that discussion about what companies can do to try and like mitigate some of the concerns when that inevitability occurs. So, uh, you know, this is going to happen. This was unfortunate, but it is kind of a sign of the connected, ever-evolving technology times we live in. Um, so the next one here was something that came up right at the end of the year was the Chip Consortium. Uh, I don't know that there's really any better name for it, Connected Home over IP. Uh, I still think it's lacking from a, a good naming and branding. But um, this was the awesome alliance between Amazon, Google, Apple, and others to put together a standard for going forward. This is still something that I know Richard and I want to do a, a deep dive episode on, but until there's more information out of than what that initial kind of blast had, um, we want, kind of want to wait to do it at the right moment. Yeah, absolutely. There isn't enough information now to dive into. You know, I, I've attended webinars and I've read up on as much as I can about this. Certainly, Stacey Higginbotham talks about this whenever there's news to be heard. And there just isn't a whole lot now because this is still early days. But the idea that all these companies decided to get together. And, you know, this is kind of hand in hand with another thing that I wanted to talk about, which is how, okay, clearly we have these different ecosystems and these different brand leaders in these ecosystems. We have Amazon, we have Google, we have Apple. And, and I think probably this year of all of those, I feel like Apple has had perhaps maybe the advantage of seeing the biggest growth in their ecosystem. I think as a percentage of what was there, HomeKit certainly has expanded quite a lot in the last year. And so it's time to get serious and realize that these fences that we've built between our properties are probably not the best way to ensure that we all survive. Yeah. I mean, I think the the reality was it was going to be this constant battle and it wasn't doing the best service to consumers in the end nor nor to the companies they were having to put in way too much resources to build these you know these ecosystems and maintain them and ultimately they needed to be able to differentiate on what's important and not the basics yep yep so I, I'm excited about this. I think this offers some interesting opportunity for device manufacturers. I know you've talked about the just the ability to maybe build to one spec as opposed to three or more different ones would be helpful, or at least it would help you maybe prioritize your spend better and perhaps give you an opportunity to 
expand your feature set or maybe even expand your integration coverage? I think it's it's almost the same argument on the manufacturer side. It's uh, focus on what makes your product different and great rather than spending a ton of effort building into three separate ecosystems, you know? Yeah, yeah. So uh, with that, I think, you know, also the kind of maturing of those ecosystems, you know, many of those have been around for multiple years now. We're starting to see a lot more stability, um, maybe not as many new features or kind of whiz bang things um, coming out of those companies. So, you know, and a lot of the basic problems kind of being solved. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I think that and again, I think this is why these two things are so tightly tied up. I think that the connected home over IP opportunity is to solve some of the problems where, well, I can do this in ecosystem A, but I can't do it in ecosystem B. And the device that I need to get the event from isn't fully supported yet in ecosystem A. So I really then have to use this third party thing instead to get that as a glue between these two. I mean, it's, it's yes, they're maturing and I think that's good, but I also feel like there's just still such a lack of parity between the different ecosystems. And that to me, I think is what is most frustrating that I can't just use one to get everything done. Yeah. No, for sure. And I, I look forward to seeing we've got w, virtual WWDC coming up here uh, next month. So it'll be interesting to see what, if any, HomeKit story is there. You know, are there going to be any new features or are they kind of hanging their hat on waiting for what's next with Chip? And uh, so it'll be interesting to see once that schedule comes out. And maybe you can actually attend now since it'll be virtual and not as a, a lead of an event. Yeah, possibly. I, I haven't really done enough research into finding out, A, if there's still any cost associated with it, and and B, kind of what, what the programming would be, if it's going to be interesting enough that I could take a couple days out of my schedule to do it. Yeah, usually HomeKit-related stuff is like, one hour of the entire schedule. So right. if that's the case, I think all you have to have is a developer account to be able to sit in on that. So hmm. we'll have to see about that. Next one on our list here is major moves in the Wi-Fi space. Do you want to talk about this a little bit more? I just think it's been interesting that we've seen so much growth in Wi-Fi, both in devices and in Wi-Fi infrastructure in the past year. I remember, I think it was maybe two years ago, when whatever alliance it is that governs Wi-Fi came out with the idea that, okay, this is getting crazy. A, C, A, C, B, X. It's too confusing. We're going to number them. And... People are like, what are you talking? And eventually it started making sense. And we are now starting to see the next generation of Wi-Fi routers, Wi-Fi 6 routers. This would be, I believe these are the AX 
routers, if I have that right. I'm not I'm not sure, but we don't have to know about that anymore. We just need to know what version of Wi-Fi. I have one of these in my basement. I have the Verizon Wi-Fi router in my basement. It is Wi-Fi 6 compatible, and it's one of those that you can mix using Wi-Fi 6 and older Wi-Fi versions without negatively impacting your uh, your Wi-Fi 6 devices. So this is really nice to see. Then we have all these different mesh systems. Everybody's been getting into mesh. You know, when I set up my Ubiquiti a couple of years ago, it it's an enterprise system because you couldn't just buy something off the shelf to get mesh in your home. I mean, you had those repeaters and the Airport Express devices that you could do, but that was messy and the the, the device or the Wi-Fi ID didn't always translate well and that so I think just things are getting better and maybe that's why we're starting to see more Wi-Fi devices behaving better. One of the things I did in early COVID times was uh, some tech consulting, just helping people out that had some tech questions or were dealing with tech issues. And um, somebody I talked to about their Wi-Fi situation was just that. It was like a mess of different devices, different manufacturers, repeater from this guy, router from this guy, maybe <laughs> double netted here. And I'm like, just get rid of all of it and get an Eero, um, you know, put in three Eros and call it a day. So yeah, I think some of that, you know, the, the mess systems really help clean up some of that and make it a little bit easier to, to deal with. So, I mean, that's been mostly my answer. I, I don't haven't seen really why I need Wi-Fi 6 yet, but I'm sure it'll come at some point, and then I'll have to redo all my Eros and uh, get something <laughs> new. But so far, that's where I've been on it. And why do we care about this? We care about this because more and more devices depend on Wi-Fi to function. And more times than not, kind of like you were giving those examples of people you know – more times than not, if you're having problems with a connected device that depends on Wi-Fi, it's probably that the Wi-Fi that is in your basement or supply closet or attic or wherever else your router happens to be buried isn't designed to hit the periphery of your home where so many of these devices are installed. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in our question later, so teaser for that. <laughs> All right. And our last thing on the list for the year uh, is uh, Wink being on life support a bit. Some mm-hmm. some news recently about Wink, if you want to get into that. Yeah. I mean, how timely, right? We talked about this. I, I think it was back in the fall when it became evident that, holy crap, wait. Devices are going offline. Nothing's happening. No one can get through to customer support. What is going on at Wink? And then I guess I would call it a whistleblower kind of lifted the curtain a little bit to say, yeah, um, we haven't been getting paid for the last month or so. And so it's just kind of running itself right now. There were rumors that the building where their offices are located were locked and the employees couldn't actually go to work. It's been a little bit insane and there's been no news out of it. Now, a little bit of background. Wink 
is currently owned by a tech, I guess, speculation firm, I would say, owned by Will I Am, the musician Will I Am. And they have some other products that also have not really stayed alive or succeeded. So the speculation here is that, okay, they're dead. They're, we're just waiting to get the notice. But no, a couple of weeks ago, they came out with a message to consumers and to the press saying, we are so excited to move forward. All we need from you is $5 a month to do it. You have by next week to pay up. Otherwise, nothing's going to work anymore. I, I mean, it was like extortion. Speaking of poorly laid out plans. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and I'm, I mean, I can't look at this with any seriousness and understanding. Like, I get that as a company, you failed to create and sustain a model that would work for you from an income perspective. Part of their model was you sell hardware, you make money on hardware, that continues to bring stuff in. They stopped making hardware. They split with the Quirky Association and lost their endorsement by GE. So they were out on their own and nothing was happening. They weren't making any major updates. The app, oh my God, the app is... So, so old and out of date. You go in and you connect devices and it's showing you the old GE Link bulbs. Remember them? They're five years old. They haven't been sold, I think, now for four years. So it, it's just been a wasteland. And for them to come and say, okay, well, we need to actually have recurring revenue to make a go of this. So we'll ask for a subscription and then to give consumers a week to get yeah. on board in a pandemic, in a pandemic <laughs> where you don't necessarily want to be spending money on stuff that you don't absolutely need to spend money on. It's just insane. It's just absolutely, it's irresponsible management. And, and you know, what probably happened is the company that they're under said, look, you got to figure out a way to turn this around or we're cutting it. And they're like, all right, we have, but, but a week, come on. So they gave another week. Yeah. They, we heard you. You have one more week. I was going to say, good news, Richard. They gave everybody <laughs> one extra week. And then that deadline came and they said, oh, we are so thankful for everybody that signed up. We're not going to charge you after all, at least not right away. What the hell? So, so did you sign up? <laughs> Oh, no, I will not give them my money. Not when you're behaving like this. Absolutely not. I, you know, I feel for anybody that works for this company, I trust that they're all smart people and they're going to be able to find something else to do because this company is not going to survive. And frankly, I don't think it deserves to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe the pause was just because not enough people signed up and so now they just have to roll out the press release of we're folding the company. <laughs> Maybe. And I'm sorry to laugh at that, but come on. They they earned this. Yeah. 
All right. So now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors, uh, if we have one this week, and uh, we'll return with more smart home discussion. All right. So we've all been home for over two months now. and 70 days, to be exact. Uh, yeah, it, it depends on where you start in counting. I count from the CDC recommendation, which was the 16th of March. But anyway, it's been a long time. More than most of us have ever been away from everything else in our lives and stayed home. And this certainly has had an impact on many, many di different businesses. Now, I feel like in the tech space, man, we have a lot of advantages in that most tech companies already had the infrastructure to allow people to work from home if they could do that. So I think that wasn't as hard an adjustment for maybe smart home product manufacturers and other companies in the smart home space. Like, well, and now that includes Google and Apple and, and uh, those big ones as well. And so we're lucky. We're not in a restaurant or in some other business space where nobody can work. There just isn't work to be had. But it's definitely impacted things. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time just talking about what those impacts are. And let's just like swat some of this around, Adam. I mean, one of the things that I've wondered, and I don't have answers here. I just, you know, things I'm observing, but I've wondered how much this might have changed some companies' roadmaps and priorities in terms of what they're working on right now, where they're putting their money, where they're investing. Are you launching something right now? Are you unable to launch something now because of uh, uh, maybe supply chain problems? Yeah, I mean, I, I can comment on what my view of it is based on our experience. Uh, I don't think we've altered roadmaps at all for our stuff. I'll tell you, I know companies are being very uh, tight on cash and trying to lower expenses. You know, there's still a lot of questions about what's going on. And so I think to that respect, you know, people are just being a little bit more careful with their spending. And, and we've seen that in some of our customers and, and just across the board. Certainly something that's impacted is like ability to, in terms of what you were saying about launching, um, you know, like Amazon went to essential only products for a while. Right. Um, that's over now. You can now get other products in there, you know. So anybody that wanted to get into retail chains or online, you know, that probably impacted things. Uh, there was just an announcement that Prime Day has moved till September, maybe. So it's obviously shifted how certain things have been done. Consumers buying habits, I think for sure you know, a lot of people have lost their jobs. And so obviously they're not buying gear and stuff like that. I think to a certain extent, some of those of us who do still have, you know, income and, you know, still have things going on, there's been some influx in buying stuff because we have time now. Right. Um, so right. it's, it's kind of a, a, a trade-off here. I know, I think, We've seen some uptick in 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 wall outlet sales, you know, probably just for this reason that people are, you know, have some time to finally do those projects that they didn't have time to do before. So 
yeah, I, I, I think there's some of that going on for sure. You know, it's funny. I have spent much less in these past few months than I normally would each month in terms of discretionary spending. And I think that part of that is because it became harder to get stuff at my go-to, which was Amazon. And part of it became that I just wanted to be a little bit more pragmatic with my spend. So, for example, I did spend money on lighting equipment for projects that I knew I was going to take on regardless, like the under cabinet lighting that I spoke about previously. But I wasn't just buying some random new product that came out or, oh, hey, yeah, I always wanted to test X. Let's buy one of those. The the big exception being that I spent 50 bucks on the new TiVo streaming device that came out. Ooh, $50, right? So I, I'm definitely being more judicious even though I do currently have the income because I'm one of the fortunate people that my job allows me to work with clients from home. But I can it's it's fascinating to me that you have a product that's actually doing better right now. That that's astounding. Yeah. How is that TiVo stream by the way, Richard? <sighs> well, it's finally here. Uh, <laughs> FedEx managed to find their backside and, uh, uh, or their head in their backside. And, uh, yeah, no, it, it's okay. It's not great. It's okay. It needs work. So I'm holding out judgment until it has a little bit more time. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I think it's kind of fascinating what's been happening in the market. The other thing that I've been seeing is I've been seeing this introduction of, um, a, a new narrative around some smart home products that these smart home products can now let you live in a more touch-free, touchless environment. You don't have to touch the light switches anymore, which, come on, let's face it, most of us don't go around and Clorox wipe our light switches, but you should be doing that. <laughs> you definitely should be. So, that sort of thing, I think, has been interesting to see companies look for opportunities to kind of position their products as a solution during this time. Yeah. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And, um, you know, as the as you know, we know that there are going to be long term effects to what we've gone through, and that's going to come in how people do things in the home in the future, certainly how people do things in, uh, you know, commercial environments in the future. So I, I think we're just seeing the beginning of that and, and there's going to be ripples for a long time. So one thing that I was wondering is with so many companies having their employees work from home, including smart home product manufacturers, I wonder if that might not end up being a good benefit for the products themselves, if people having to live on more of a day-to-day basis with the products that they create, maybe that'll give them a better firsthand perspective on things. Yeah. 
I hadn't, I hadn't even really thought of this from that angle. I mean, I think we encourage all of our engineers to use our stuff and other people's products in their daily lives. I think for one thing is, uh, you know, the engineers and stuff working from home, like just engineers don't want to be bothered. They just want to put their head down and code and, and do their thing. So uh, a lot of our engineering team loves this and are like, okay, do we ever have to come back to the office? Great. Okay. <laughs> so I think it, it's definitely going to change things. And we've seen some big companies in, in Silicon Valley say, all right, this is the new, you know, this is proven. It works. This is the new thing. This is the new default. So I think you're going to see a lot more of this. And I think one of my interesting angles here that I wanted to comment on is like, okay, but how do you do that with hardware? You know, hardware can be really challenging. How do you do that remotely? And, right. uh, you know, I think you get smart people and they figure it out. Our, our guys, you know, some have gone into the office a little bit when they need certain equipment. People take stuff home. Um, there's been a good amount of like, all right, I'm going to go in and I'm going to program these devices and I'll leave it on your desk. Come pick it up at night when nobody's here and, uh, you know, we'll figure it out. So I think people have been able to get pretty creative with how they, you know, go in and do that. You might be delayed by a day where you normally would have just had it, but, um, it's working and, and people are figuring it out. So I think to that extent, like it very much can be done. And uh, at least in our case, we're, we're making it work. It could also take an investment of sorts in hardware that companies haven't had to deal with before. But I would imagine that this, this might result in perhaps more prototyping where you're creating models that, that multiple people then take home and work with. And either through some sort of test harness or just by collaborating the work that are coordinating the work that they're collaborating on, then could potentially remotely be testing this hardware kind of with each other. Now that's different from hardware design for sure. But I think that I think we're going to see some creative ways for companies to handle this in a way that's only going to be good if in fact it means prototyping and figuring out ways of of doing more thorough testing where you might have just taken for granted that y'all kind of worked in the same shop or lab yeah so uh you know we've lost a few companies but not sure if this is really what knocked them out or if this is just their excuse so one of these was automatic <laughs> Yeah, total excuse. Yeah. Like I, I, this is yeah, we're only I only have two companies that I'm aware of right now so far. I know of some that are in straits, but uh, Automatic is a company that makes this dongle that you put on your uh some initials under your dash that I can never remember. This port that is on every car ODB2. Oh, oh okay. Uh, it it puts it, you put it in that port and basically it allows your car to then interact and in many cases act as a trigger for stuff in your life. It's a really cool device. We had one of the founders of automatic on the comp on uh, home on years ago. Well, Sirius XM bought the company a 
a couple of the founders kind of left and went off and did other things. And I felt like Sirius never really did anything with it. It seemed like they just put it in their what portfolio and just let it sit there and squandered a really cool opportunity because people have been looking for ways of kind of bringing the car into the smart home more. So, uh, yeah, they, they came out with a notice that said, all right, well, you know, this COVID stuff's been really hard and we're, we've seen our sales go down because people aren't driving. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think you're in, I, I think you're looking for an excuse. I don't yeah. buy it. I know where my, my automatic that I had has been sitting in a drawer for years. So I think it was a cool idea, but ultimately, you know, the, the real winner of that form factor was like the insurance companies that want to monitor you to a certain extent as somebody who maybe drives more aggressively than he would want his insurance company to know about. I would never put one of those in my car and (laughs) I didn't really trust automatic or anybody else to have that you know, in my car and that they wouldn't rat me out to the insurance company. So. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I I can see that. Uh, And, you know, another one, another company, this is really sad. I think Uh, Pico Brew, uh, smart home company, smart kitchen company that allowed you to make your own beer at home through something of uh, almost like the Keurig model. And uh, I've spoken with the founder numerous times. Really smart guy. I came from Microsoft. They were doing some cool stuff. They were looking for investment right before this thing hit. So they they were unfortunately kind of at a point where they needed an influx. And obviously, that's just not happening now. Yeah. Yeah. It's too bad. But uh, yeah, you know, it's one of those things where you can't let your company get that close to the brink or else uh, something like this uh, will will knock you out for sure. Yep. So we've also, we've seen some uh, we talked a little bit about conferences, but we've seen some quite a few of conferences canceled. So MWC, Mobile World Congress was canceled. That was an early one. I think that was like the big one. I think yeah. that was kind of the the lighthouse, if you will. When when that was canceled, that was like eye-opening. And even at the time, we're like, well, yeah, it's in Europe. Of course, that makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, I think for the most part, you know, our attitude on some of this right now is like, even if they do hold these conferences, are anybody going to come? You know, <laughs> you and right. I have said we're not attending any conferences this year. So, yeah, I I don't think it makes sense financially from a company perspective to support those kinds of initiatives. I would agree. And and do you really want to put your employees in, in line of potential harm, like health risk that doesn't seem like a good place to be. So, uh, you know, we're, we are seeing some of these conferences decide that they're going to go virtual. Like IFC has announced that they're going to be virtual. IoT World, uh, I, you just brought this to my attention. They had originally postponed just like the Parks Connected conference, but now they've announced that they're going to go virtual. But then we have others like ISE and Cedia that are saying, yep, nope, we're still on. 
really? Really? Yeah. I, I, I don't get it. I, you know, the, Cedia was one where we, we attended Cedia and had a booth there last year and uh, hadn't put money down on anything yet. And I'm kind of glad we didn't. And we were talking to them about, you know, possibly doing the show. And I was probably going to do it, but I just don't think, kind of to what I said earlier, I just don't think people are going to show up. No, I, I agree. And certainly you not being able to do that has a business impact on you, right? I mean, sure, you spend money on that, but those are also lead generation and networking opportunities and connection opportunities for your companies. So while we look at it, or I look at it mostly from a consumer point of view that, hey, here's all this, all these new product announcements and the opportunity to find out more about these companies, it's, I think, even more important for the companies themselves and has a bigger impact. You know, they're, they're, other financial impacts on companies. And, and certainly we know that while there's assistance out there for some, depending on the size of your company, folks are laying people off. I mean, I, I know of people in the space that have been laid off during this time. And that's rough because you have no idea if those companies are really going to be able to be in a position after this if they survive. Like if you're doing layoffs, the first question you have to wonder is, are they going to survive? And then if they do, would they be in a position to bring that talent back into the pool? And that's a that's a harder one. Now, the the assistance for small businesses, the payroll protection plan actually helps with that. If you're a small business and you've applied for and qualified for PPP funding, then you can get a lot of that funding without having to pay it back if a, a significant portion of your use of that money is to bring people back that you've laid off or to keep from laying people off. Right. That money goes through like mid-June, though. Um, so we were somebody that applied for that and, and got it. And so I think for some company, you, we're going to either they're going to need to bring some more money to the table or we're going to see a, another wave of layoffs and stuff because people are incentivized to keep people on through that date. But once that money, you know, runs out, if they were really, really hurting, then that's going to be tough to to keep people on. So... Yeah, and both the good news and the bad news is that most economists agree with what you've just said. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I I just kind of wanted to wrap this conversation with some some thoughts on where, you know, where we think this is going. Like we we talked about companies that were already at risk. The reality is that many of them probably are not going to make it. If you were just hanging on before this, I, I, I'm worried for you. I'm worried about you because I am concerned that this type of event is hard for the largest companies to weather. Yeah, and and it's unfortunate, but it's it's something that's going to happen. And you know, hopefully those companies, you know, good stuff will come out of it. Those people will start something new. You know, I think one of the things that as an entrepreneur is encouraging to me, I also seeing people that are like, 
okay, now's the time to go all in on something new. So I think there will be also be some new great stuff born out of this that, you know, somebody's going to say, all right, I, this is enough. You know, I'm tired of this. I'm moving on doing something else. So it, it gives people an opportunity also to kind of shed the old and start anew. Well, and I like that perspective because I think that even inside companies, you know, let's let's look at some of the biggest companies like car manufacturers that that change their business to be able to build uh, ventilators or other companies that have, you know, been making masks and things like that. Now, Apple made masks like the, the fact that you can come up with a way of pivoting or adjusting or rethinking your manufacturing model or your business process to do completely new things and come out with completely new product, I think is amazing and speaks to some of the ingenuity of some of these tech companies. Yeah, I think it's been it's pretty awesome that companies have been able to, you know, move on a dime and you're seeing, you know, rapid change and rapid, you know, acceleration at certain things and I think in as much as there's some sad things about it, I think it's also an exciting time for sure. And frankly, if you survive that, like this is testing your ability to really do that. And I feel like if you can survive that, if you can make a pivot or if you can flex your business beyond the original vision to adjust to this time, you come out of it way stronger than sure. you were initially. Definitely. And, and then, and this is just kind of an interesting one that I don't know if everybody like if consumers have really thought about and if employees have really thought about it. But I guarantee you the companies that are saying, Oh yeah, well, everyone can work from home going forward. If this is really working out for us are also thinking, and we're going to save a lot of money on capital costs. Yeah. I mean, I think to a certain extent, it's been an, a great experiment and, Folks like us that weren't used to everybody working from home, it, it's proven some things out. Yeah. I mean, I think there was always this, you know, while whatever, a few years ago, we would have seen growth in our company of, you know, we need a fancy new office, a fancy new building. You know, I don't think that is needed anymore, really. And while we were kind of starting to burst at the seams in our current space, Maybe that helps kind of change that equation going forward and we figure out, you know, how to make the space work for, for what we have. So I, I absolutely think it's going to save companies money and I wouldn't look at it as a greedy thing as much as a win-win scenario. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, if people like working from home and want to do it, great. If they If they need to be in the office to be productive, then... You know, you find a way to make that work in a healthy and safe way, too. So it, it's, it's an exciting time. And, um, you know, there are certainly are companies like uh, Basecamp that were pioneers in this space um, that were all remote from the beginning. And, you know, I think there's going to be a lot more big companies that are doing that. And it's uh, it's an interesting time. And it's a lot of opportunity for companies that create tools 
for that way of working as well. For sure. All right. So to close out, uh, I want to thank everybody. We had a ton of new questions um, sent our way. Um, And so we'll, we'll try to answer one of those in every episode. But one of those questions came from uh, a friend of the show, Robert Spiviak, good guy. Um, but he asked a question on Twitter. Uh, why are some devices having trouble staying on Wi-Fi? Don't many of those use the same Wi-Fi chip and OEM driver slash firmware stack? Still the warning about single SSID 2.4 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi. Why can't they just latch onto the lower speed Wi-Fi? And why do they have to support both speeds on their chip? So great question. And I'll kind of give my answer. And then I also kind of threw this out to some of my engineering team because I wanted to get their feedback on it too. So a couple core points here. First, everybody's core firmware that they have on their Wi-Fi chip is not the same. So, you know, there may be some base stuff there, but everybody kind of puts their own special sauce on top of it. And that can affect connectivity in different ways. The other thing to know about here is that even if two people that are on the same Wi-Fi chip, those chips go through different versions of an SDK, and that SDK will affect how some of those base functionality and networking stack operate. So two devices using the same Wi-Fi chipset may be on two totally different um, SDKs, and that's going to definitely affect this. One of the other ones here is the different routers definitely have a huge thing to play in in this space and they all do things very differently. And then the other the last thing I was going to comment on too was not everybody uses the same Wi-Fi chips. There's still a lot of diversity here as much as we see a lot of people going expressive and some of these other chipsets, there's still a lot out there and a lot of things that can be up in the air. So I have an article from Stacy that I'll throw in the, the show notes uh, about why some devices won't uh, connect to your Wi-Fi. You know, I think one of the big problems here and what we've seen is this Wi-Fi band steering. And what this basically means, this is an article one of my engineers sent me, is like telling your device to get on five gigahertz or 2.4. So I think the root of this problem is these devi- these routers that have both 2.4 and five gigahertz. And it used to be when this first came out, they would be two separate networks, two separate SSIDs. And as the technology moved along, they now have one network, one SSID, and they're just kind of doing it in the background. One of the things I thought was interesting here is there really is not a standard for how this is handled. It's not part of the IEEE. It's not part of the Wi-Fi Alliance. So every Wi-Fi router manufacturer is doing this differently. And this article I'll, I'll include also had another interesting point, which is that the the different Wi-Fi bands in your head, you know, would have the same coverage, but actually five gigahertz penetrates further out than two point four. So you actually don't have the same coverage in your home unless you've totally blanketed it with Eros like me that you have on the edge. So, you know, if you only have like one or two routers, you may have a device on the edge that five gigahertz can get to, but 2.4 can't. So I thought that was an interesting point. 
you know, and I think what at the root of one of these problems is like, you know, you're trying to get a device provisioned or something like that. You have your phone that's on five gigahertz. So phone looks great. Yet this device is struggling. It's on 2.4. Another thing in this mix is most IOT devices use chipsets that only work with 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi. This is just costs right now. It is cost prohibitive to put a 5 gigahertz chip in most devices. And frankly, most IoT devices don't have any reason to have a 5 gigahertz chip in them. It, it just makes no sense. So uh, the fact that the costs are too high and is not ubiquitous, most devices are still on, on 2.4. So hopefully as the price of dual band Wi-Fi goes down, then more of us can put those into our devices and then this problem will go away more. Is there a like a, a quality issue on chips as well? Like for example, if you buy the really, really, really cheap chip that's off that's not one of the big manufacturers, is it likely to be less reliable than one of the main ones? I would say that probably was the case two, three years ago, but now the stuff that's lower priced, like Espressive I mentioned earlier, is one of the kind of low price leaders. They they rock. They're really good, really solid, very good support. So I think maybe there's still some like off-brand stuff that might be that way, but I think for the most part, things are getting way, way better. So, um, you know, it's just something that's going to get better over time. And it's test, test, test. It's different uh, routers. We were just helping a customer troubleshoot a router issue uh, earlier today. One of my colleagues was talking about. And it's like this one router brand that has this weird setting that messes with HomeKit pairing. you know. And mm. all it is is uncheck this box. And then all of a sudden, HomeKit pairing works uh, under this router. So I think it's one of those things where... You know, it's still a little bit wild, wild westy, and and that's why it can be. But I think to this point, I think the best thing you can do as a as a user is to make sure you're updating your device's firmware when new firmware releases come out. Um, I know for our stuff, you know, as we see problems, we put out firmware updates and fixes, and sometimes these can have a great effect towards the stability and staying on Wi-Fi. Certainly keep those things up to date and also keep your routers up to date too. That can also help and things like that. So, and sometimes just a good uh, power cycle can help everything as well. (laughs) Have you tried turning it off and turning it on again? For sure. All right. Well, if you have a smart home question for us, you can send it our way with the hashtag AskSmartHomeShow on Twitter, and we'll pick a question and include in each show. And thanks to Adam reaching out and asking for some questions uh, a couple weeks ago. We have uh, a pretty good lineup for the next couple of episodes. But keep them coming, people. Keep them coming. All right. So, Richard, where can everybody find you on the Internet? Well, uh, best place is on Twitter at Richard Gunther. And I'm usually posting there about stuff that I'm working on, about stuff that I'm thinking. I don't really post very often about stuff that I'm eating. That's that's for Instagram. I'm over there too, but you'll have to dig a little bit more. 
And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Justice and uh, everything my company's working on at ConnectSense.com and uh, some new products coming soon. So hopefully we'll be able to talk about those on the show when uh, when the time comes. Ooh, special feature. Maybe a sneak preview? Sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into it. <laughs> Under embargo, of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, and, uh, of course the smart home show is part of technology.fm, a collection of tech focused podcasts, including home tech FM, uh, the food tech show and Richard's other podcast home on. And of course you can find everything about this show at smarthome.fm, show notes and details about each episode. And, uh, we have an email address now too. So, um, you can send us feedback at feedback at smarthome.fm. And, of course, you can find us in op- Apple Podcasts, Overcast, everywhere else you can find podcasts. And we're not selling out to Spotify anytime soon, so you'll find <laughs> it anywhere you can You get your podcasts. <laughs> Good plan. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks for tuning in.